You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. What a great promise that we are going to feast one day and there'll never again be weeping because of what Christ has done. It's Thanksgiving week and I've just been struck this morning to how grateful I am for the worship team that is up here. They get here at 745 in the morning uh, and they're here through the second service. Really grateful for their service. Many of you serve the Lord in different ways and grateful for everyone. But I'm just thinking about worship team this morning and how grateful we are that they serve in the ways that they do. If you knew how much they were paid, you'd say, well, of course they, now you know how much they're paid. Uh, So that service is rendered to the Lord, but it's a service to us too. So it is Thanksgiving week and in many homes, preparations for the finest meal of the year have been underway for weeks. You've been shopping, you've been storing away, you've got, you've got some of your desserts baked and you've put them in the freezer. All kinds of preparations are going on. Now, I don't do this very often, so I'm going to ask you if you would participate. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to talk about some of the different foods at Thanksgiving. And if you have this food in your home this week or if you're going somewhere and you're going to eat and you know that they're going to have turkey, raise your hand. All the tur- turkey. All right, dressing. I guess that's a southern, no, I guess that's an all-around thing. How about ham? Any ham? All right, we've got a few weird ones in our family. We'll probably have a little ham as well. Mashed potatoes, sweet potato casserole, uh, green bean casserole or green beans, devil eggs. Ah, some devil eggs in here. I don't know what it is. I guess an affinity for devil eggs comes with a call to preach the gospel. I don't, I don't know. It just seems to be that's that kind of go together. Ambrosia or some kind of jello fruit salad. Uh, pumpkin pie. All right, now you know what we're having in our home on Thanksgiving this week, except for the devil eggs. We won't have those. We are so blessed. And by the way, I'm grateful that so many of you are participating in the Thanksgiving meal for the refugees in Raleigh, thank you for responding so quickly and, and, and so completely for the needs that we have uh, to, to, to make that meal a special day for the refugees who are here from lots of different places. Uh, since we're talking about meals with the large variety and quantity of food, let's think about church potlucks. I miss the old potlucks, you know. We used to have the table set right up over there, and then we'd have tables in here and and uh, go through the line. We still have them on occasion, but not as regularly as we used to. Imagine a potluck like the one I am about to describe. Let's imagine we've got the table set up, and we have people bringing in food. Well, Some people are bringing in food. Let's imagine that our church is divided into pretty wealthy people and a lot of poor people. So the wealthy bring the food in and our special events team receives the food in our wildly oversized kitchen. So you know it's a fantasy. Um, 
But the rich bring in an abundance of food and drink, and the poor have very little to contribute. The food is set out on the tables, and Ricky Lee takes the microphone. He says, all right, we're about to have our potluck. And so all the wealthy who brought food or all those who brought food, please feel free to line up. If you did not bring food, I'm sorry, this man. No, Ricky wouldn't say, Ricky would say that. He would go like, oh, I'm sorry, my family, don't eat. We got to make sure everybody else. But in this scenario, Ricky would say, if you didn't bring food, not for you. Please stay away. Don't participate in the meal. We have cheap wine and stale bread for those of you who didn't bring any food so that you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, but don't get in the food by it. This is akin to the abuse that was going on in Corinth, although we'll see in a few minutes why the potluck is not a perfect analogy of what was happening in Corinth. Gives you an idea, though, of the discrimination that made the Lord's Supper the time when we ought to be celebrating the fact that Christ broke down all the barriers between rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, cultured, non-cultured. Christ broke. We are all one at this meal, but they were making a mockery of Christ's death. They separated people into the privileged and the oppressed groups. The gospel had leveled the playing field, but it was not a level playing field at Corinth. Everybody knew who was who. Our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, is a bit of a lengthy text, but it's a lot more straightforward than some of the uh, passages that we have read over the last several weeks. And so we're going to read the scripture together, going to read through this text. Then there will <coughs> be three points of application in which some of the challenging uh, verses are explained. Uh, and we will see what the Lord has for us in our day. Even though our issues with the Lord's table are not at all like they were in the first century, they're very much like they were in the first century. And let's figure out how that happens. So it's our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you would please stand as the scripture is being read, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth saying, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We've been dealing with this all the way through the letter to the Corinthians. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. That's kind of the spirit in which Paul said it. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What then shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. The first thought that we're going to wrestle with in this text is unity at the table is mandatory. To promote division in the church is dangerous. Alan Box, who was here in the first service, is one of our military veterans. He served in the Air Force for 26 years and then he went back another year as a contractor, private contractor, in the land of Iraq, in the country of Iraq. Now, Alan had the job that many of you, especially some of you guys, would think was the perfect job. He blew things up for a living. I mean, that was his his job. They would collect IEDs, other explosive devices. They would um, get bullets and any materials that were used to make explosives put it in this huge hole, I can't even picture it in my mind, pour diesel fuel all over it, stand back, and make sure that uh, it was, make sure you're standing back before you light it, because man, you know what's going to happen. Alan said it was one of the, the greatest fireworks shows ever. They often had to handle the explosives that they put into the um, into the hole. I, I had thought for a bit that Alan was one who dismantled the bombs, and then I, he, he said, "No, that that wasn't me." But I said, "So you were handling them?" He, yes, he was putting them into the into the hole before they blew them all up. There, there are plenty of dangers uh, in other ways that were associated with this job, as a, as well. It was a necessary job, but a dangerous one. Now, just imagine this: they blew up, burned up 100 tons of explosives every day, seven days a week. And it barely put a dent in the explosives in the land. But it was important that this job be be done. But you better be careful 
while you're doing it. So if you're wondering what blowing up things in the Lord's Supper have in common, I might be wondering, wondering the same thing with you. I, not really. I know. I, the point I want to make is this. The Lord's Supper is a requirement for believers, a requirement that some churches take more seriously than others. Some of you have come from churches where you observe the Lord's Supper every week. Others of you have come from churches where maybe once a quarter, even sometimes a couple of times a year or once a year. The Lord commands us to come to the table, though. It's part of the Christian life. Does this participation in this table save us? No, but if you're a saved person, you're called to participate. Does baptism save us? No, but the scripture knows nothing of an unbaptized believer except for the thief on the cross. Acknowledge that. But it's a table where blessing is given to us in the greatest of ways. But it's dangerous if we approach it in the wrong way. In Corinth, the church most likely met once a week on Saturday night or Sunday night in the home of one of the wealthier members. A meal was included in the gathering almost every week. They called it the agape feast. It was a love feast and, and they would share food together. Well, most churches shared food together, but these in Corinth did not. It's likely that the bread was served at the beginning of the meal and the wine at the end of the meal. It was wine unless it was some really powerful grape juice that I don't know anything about because they were getting drunk at the table. It wasn't like our potluck. The wealthy would bring their food but refuse to offer it to the poor. The poorer church members would have little, if any, food. Why did the wealthy refuse to share their food in these meetings? Well, there, there, there could have been a couple of reasons. First, it could be that the wealthy assumed that the same social structures and distinctions that were in place for everyday life should be no different in a church meeting. It was just understood, oh, these are the important people these are the less important people. Second, and this is a distinct possibility, it could be that a theology of glory was in full force at Corinth Church, and the, the elites thought that the blessings of their wealth and social status were signs of God's favor on them. Furthermore, those who were poor obviously were not being blessed of the Lord, and if you carry this out logically, then maybe God is judging them. And wouldn't it be wrong for us to bless them when the Lord is judging them? You know, it might bring judgment on us. As crazy as that sounds, it's really not that far from the way a lot of people function in life. It was much like the current caste system in India, where it's thought that the deletes or the untouchables are in a state of judgment, being punished for their sins in a previous life. And if you're in a higher caste, then you need not be polite to the deletes. You could, in fact, just ignore them, look down on them, mistreat them. It doesn't matter. They're only getting what's coming to them. 
They deserve it. Hinduism is a religion that is fully committed to a theology of glory. Or, and every religion except for true Christianity is a theology of glory. If I can just be good enough, then I'll move up the ladder. And eventually one day I'll get to God. Christianity and this table tell us the exact opposite. So you've come to the home of one of the wealthier members of your church in Corinth. And you're going to see that in this home, just like in most homes of that class in that day, there were two primary rooms for dining. One was a large room where they had couches laid out around the room. You could fit up to about 10. And they would dine just like you would think uh, you recline on the on the couches and eat grapes and cheese and you know all that stuff you think about people having fans. Well, well, the rich were in there. Then there was a second room where the next class down would stand around and eat, and everyone else just made do wherever they could in the house. Paul spoke to this arrangement with his typical Corinthian sarcastic flair in verses 19 and 17. Of course, there are divisions among you. How would we know who the spiritual ones, the genuine ones are, if there weren't divisions? But if I want to know the ones that God has blessed, I know which room to go into. And then I go into the next room and say, well, maybe you're not quite as good as them, but you're still pretty good. And then I look around at the rest of the crowd and say, hmm. Lord's not doing much for you because you must not have done much for him. Well, the poor oftentimes came in late. And look, the food wouldn't have been shared with them anyway. But the poor were common laborers. They were slaves many times. They didn't have control over their own schedule. So they would get there when they could. And along with the food that was consumed by the rich, since it was a party, or so they seem to have perceived. Copious amounts of wine were consumed and people were drunk. The New International Version captures the extent of Paul's frustrations in verse 17 when he says, Your meetings do more harm than good. Just imagine if the Lord said that about our church. Your meetings do more harm than good. The irony was rich or perhaps tragic. Jesus died to bring all believers into the family of God as equals. But the rich were causing the poor to feel like nobodies. And again, ironically, God judged those who thought they were superior. While Jesus' sacrifice led to salvation for all who would believe, the selfishness of the wealthy believers led to their judgment. The way the elites of the church observed uh, the supper pointed to a false gospel, a gospel in which worldly success is an indication that God is blessing and rewarding you and your good works, and that trials are an indication 
that you're in trouble with the Lord. The Lord's Supper tells the true gospel. No one is good enough. But Jesus was good enough. And his sacrifice is given to all. Or is the benefits of his sacrifice are offered to all. And all are equal at the foot of the cross. Best we remember this when we come to the table. Which leads to our second point. Self-examination and repentance are required. But there is a beauty and peace and humility in confession. Have you ever skipped the Lord's Supper because you weren't sure about the quality of your relationship with the Lord? You ever heard a preacher say, now look, if you've got sin in your life, you better not partake. You ever participate in the Lord's Supper when perhaps you should not have done so? The sin that plagued the Corinthians was arrogance. Some felt superior to others because of their wealth, their knowledge, their position in society, and on and on. It was not that the elites were struggling with personal sins, nor was it a discernible smugness that you know that you get with some people who are just, they just give off the airs, I'm better than you. So, I, I mean, say what you need to say, and let's just, let me move on to someone or something else that's more important. It's not even that. Their sin was that they gladly adopted the normal social distinctions. They dined at the Lord's table in ways that humiliated the poor, or at the very least reminded the poor of who they were and who the real big shots in the church were. Look, we, I don't know, it's funny how often wealth is, wealth and knowledge and position, all of these things are dangerous to us. It's, it's interesting to me how many times poor people rise through the ranks and then look down on poor people. Or you grow up in a very wealthy home and you never know anything else. But the cross is supposed to take care of all of that. We're supposed to love one another as equals before the Lord. When we bring our big shot credentials, it's one thing to try to establish our creds at work or in the neighborhood. But when you bring it into the church, especially when you come to the table, you have that kind of arrogance going on, you're in big trouble. Let's read the portion of the text that is relevant to our thoughts about this point. Then we'll consider how it applies to us. It's important to remember as we read the sins that were being addressed by the Apostle Paul were attitudes and actions that divided the body into the haves and the have-nots, or in their minds, the spiritual and the ungodly. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. So examine yourself and then eat. It's not that he's saying examine yourself and withhold. He's saying examine yourself, change your ways if you got a problem with this in your, in your mind, in your actions. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Do we even think about this anymore? That the Lord judges us at this level? Look, when I was a young Christian, guilt was all the rage in the Christian world. And I lived my life thinking that a telephone pole was going to drop on my head. And after it didn't for 10, 15 years, you just sort of get numb. It's a bad way to live. You, don't, you should not live thinking, oh, the Lord's going to judge me. The Lord's going to judge me. The people that the Lord judges are the ones who aren't thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? They're the ones that need to hear this and and to say, wait a minute, maybe there's something in my life that needs attention. Verse 31 says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So how do we eat or drink? The Lord's cup unworthily. Well, surely an unsaved person could do that, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Now, we always say and should say, if you're not a believer, this meal is for believers. Just like Ricky said today, we, we, we should always say that. We should fence the table, but really... The longer I go, I'm more interested in setting the table and saying, this is what this points to. So I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's writing to believers. In verse 29, we're told that to discern the body of Christ. Is that not the body of Christ that is among us? Jesus died to break down these barriers. And if we ever come to the table with a haughty spirit, well, that's when we're mishandling the elements and we're putting ourselves in danger. One of the ways that we know most of these Corinthians were Christians is because of the truth in verse 32. When God judges believers, it is to cause them... <clears throat> To turn from their ways, or if he goes all the way, then it is to separate us from those who are condemned. Now, I would guess that some of you are trembling on the inside about now. And I know this because I've spent many years there. I know that state of mind. After all, you might have been struggling with your thought life or with exaggeration that really ends up just being nothing more than lying or with an undisciplined tongue or with lust or with alcohol or whatever it is you're struggling with. I used to say this a lot more than I have lately, but I'm not as concerned when you tell me that you're struggling with sin as I am when it's apparent that you've given up on the struggle. We're all, we all struggle with something, right? We all have issues that we're dealing with. Please do not think that I'm taking sin lightly 
or that I'm giving anyone permission to continue with the sin. But this table of all places is a tangible expression of God's forgiveness for those who confess their sins to him and ask him to give them strength to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. We participate at this table with fellow sinners whom God has saved and brought into his family. It's always a good idea for us to examine ourselves or to let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts and consciences to reveal sin that needs to be confessed. But struggling with an ongoing sin is not a deal breaker for the table. What is a deal breaker according to our text? I, I think it's arrogance. I think it's an attitude that I'm better than others. And I just hope everybody knows that. If you're participating in a sin that you know is horribly wrong and you have no intention whatsoever of giving up your sin, but you continue to participate in the Lord's Supper, I would be concerned. For instance, if you're secretly having an affair and you refuse to confess and forsake your sins, then I would not partake of this table if I were you. If you're struggling with your thought life, then get help. But if you desperately want to put that sin behind you, by all means, come to the table and partake. You will be reminded not what you have done for God, but what Jesus has done for you. So it's a good time to ask the question again. Is this table something that we do for God or is it something that he does for us? The answer is yes, but it's really about being reminded of what he has done for us. I understand, though, how difficult difficult it can be to struggle with an overly sensitive conscience and, and, and to be paralyzed with fear almost and say, whoa, I better not... Protect of the sin. I mean, protect of the table because the Lord is going to judge me because of my sin. And by the way, because there are a lot of people who struggle with those kinds of sensitive consciences, maybe you don't, but don't ever judge someone. You say, mm-hmm, I see who didn't partake. Wonder what's going on in his or her life. That's when you get close to dangerous. That's when you're close to being in danger when you're judging other people. Repentance is not an easy posture for anyone. Not even for believers. It requires fessing up and sometimes it, it means facing the music. But there is blessing and peace and humility and confession. If you confess your sins, do not dare refuse to participate in this table. It's not that that there is a warning for those who refuse to partake. I mean, you don't have to partake to be saved. And God doesn't say, if you don't partake of this, then you're in big trouble. But what a blessing you're missing. Now, there's a warning 
for coming to this table with an arrogant spirit, a haughty spirit about how much better I am than others. There's no warning against not participating, but you are missing blessings that do not come any other way. The longer I live as God's child, the more certain I am that this table is a means of grace for believers. You wouldn't think about not reading your Bible or not praying. Don't think about missing out on this table. It's part of our sanctification and spiritual growth. Do not miss God's blessing for you. And the last point this morning is a good place for us to leave 1 Corinthians for a while as we take a break for Advent and the beginning of the year in January. So Advent begins next week. The third point, time at the table binds us to Jesus and to one another. The supper is a tangible promise of the hope that we have in Jesus' return to redeem and restore this broken world and to visibly reign as king. We believe he's reigning now, right? Well, everybody's going to know that he's reigning when he returns. The gospel is an inexhaustible well of God's mercy through Jesus, freely given to those who believe. Do you believe this? The gospel is an inexhaustible well of God's mercy in Christ. And God's mercy in Christ is freely given to those who believe. And if we fail to marinate in this truth, we will drift into a theology of glory and assume that the good things that happen to us are a sign of God's blessing. And when bad things happen to us, then we're in trouble with the Lord and we are experiencing his disapproval. That's why that little phrase that I read in Principles of Spiritual Growth so many years still comes to me. To be disappointed in yourself is to have believed in yourself. The table reminds us that the only place that our trust should be is in Jesus. Life with Christ begins when sinners acknowledge that they are sinful and can never be good enough to earn God's approval. They confess their sins to the Lord and cry out to Jesus who, to save them. And they can cry out to Jesus because the table, as the table reminds us, he gave his body and blood to redeem us and bring us into a new covenant. The, the old covenant, a covenant of law or a covenant of works that said, if you'll do this, God will do this. Well, it was never going to work. It's not that the old covenant of law was plan A and the cross was plan B. Part of the reason for the law is to remind us we can never be good enough to cause God to accept us. But since Jesus was, he died in our place so that God's wrath against our sins can be absorbed by Jesus. And even if that doesn't make perfect sense to you, but you know that you need Jesus in your heart, cry out to him, Lord, save me, forgive my sins and save me. If the Lord's Supper reminds us of what it means to be saved. Then why do we need to be reminded so often? It's not too much gospel 
That is our problem. It's far too little gospel that is our problem. Our default position is legalism or seeking to earn God's favor through our good works. The problem with legalism is that it's all about me and whether I know it or not, that is a recipe for disaster. Just imagine how those Corinthians believers with what may have been a hundred people in the church, how those ten felt stretched out on those sofas. Oh, I'm just so grateful that God has blessed us in this way. Too bad about those people in the other rooms. Oh, let's don't think about that. Just think about God's. Nah. Christopher Watkin is a professor of French studies at Monash uh, University in Melbourne, Australia. And he's written a book that the elders and staff will be working through in the first part of 2022. It's called Biblical Critical Theory, but don't read too much into that title. The point of this book is that Scripture should not be interpreted through the lens of critical theory, but rather the culture must be interpreted through the lens of Scripture. I emailed uh, Mike Rader about Christopher Watkin because he lives in Melbourne, Australia, and ask him if he knew him. And he says, oh, yes, he's one of the sweetest, most humble, godliest Christian men you'll ever meet. And he has a very big brain. And I, I get that. Kevin uh, Van Hooser, one of the finest theologians slash biblical thinkers of our day, and David Calvert's primary reader for his Ph.D., calls this book a modern-day city of God, which was written by St. Augustine early in the 5th century. Augustine, in the words of Os Guinness, when he spoke at Allison's Trinity Academy uh, commencement for the 12th graders, he, was, he said, when Augustine stood on the walls of Hippo, in North Africa, and he looked over those walls, he saw a very dark age, and it was a dark age indeed. And he wrote this book, City of God, and he says, this is how we are to live. I've been looking for this book for a long time. The, the church has been looking for this book, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I can tell you this, we're going into a dark, we're already there, we're in a new dark age. With all the technology, all the information, the world has so much at its fingertips. And we have, we can call for our benefit more information than the greatest libraries in the history of the world. We got it in our back, but we carry it around in our pocket. That's why we have to get new pants so often, you know. <laughs> and yet, we're descending into a dark age. How do we live? As academic as the book is, it's also very accessible, as long as you're willing to just skip over things and just keep going. You can discern... Watkins' heart when he offers this testimony of his relationship with Christ to close the acknowledgments of gratitude that he extends to those who helped make this book become a reality. Quote, I have been a Christian since 1993. 
I was called before the creation of the world. I was crucified with Christ. My sins are forgiven. I have the privilege of knowing the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. I will spend eternity enjoying him. This was his greatest acknowledgement. We are reminded of all these truths and more every time we come to the Lord's table. Do not ever allow the Lord's Supper to become ritualistic for you. Look, if we met every day for those who could, every day at 10 a.m., we came in here and observed the supper. It should never be just going through the motions for us. It is good to be reminded that we have been saved by Jesus and He is our only hope of salvation. It is good to be reminded that we have been brought into a family that is designed to be dearer to us than we could possibly imagine and with whom we will praise God for all eternity. It is good to remember that not only have we died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ. It is good for us to preach the gospel, which is what we do when we come to the table. And it is good to remember that Jesus will come again and set all things right. This is worth celebrating, especially this week of Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ways. We thank you for the tangible promise of your forgiveness to us at your table. Thank you, Father, for your plan. To make us like Jesus by sending him to die for us. When our sins had separated us from you, you made a way. So Lord, we give thanks to you for the meal that you've brought us to, to remind us and for the day that we will feast. In the house of Zion. With all sorrows. All failures. All of our own sins. Everything put entirely and completely behind us. We love you. Confess that we are weak. And that we sin. And we're so grateful that we. Have been invited to this table. Anyway. And that you have made a way. To cleanse us from our sins and to bring us back into fellowship when we stray. So Lord, we love you and commit ourselves to you afresh and anew. On this week of Thanksgiving, our hearts are filled with gratitude. We sing together. Would you please stand?
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.